You not fooling a libertarian by bringing up them bitch ass roads. Libertarians, which tend to be smarter people, you somehow think that the thing that's gonna stump us and be like, damn, fuck this libertarian shit, is the motherfucking roads. This is level one shit. You not fooling now libertarian by bringing up them bitch ass roads. Fuck them hoe ass roads, man. My name is Ben Burgess, and this is Give Them an Argument. Uh, later in the episode, I'm going to be speaking to the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley political science professor and fully automated host, Nicholas Kiersey. We're going to be talking about academia, identity politics, identitarian deference, and standpoint epistemology. It's really interesting stuff, uh, it's a really interesting conversation. Um, and of course, I'm going to be ending the episode, as always, uh, with Outlaws and Revolutionaries, with the great David Griscom. Uh, but before that, I am going to be talking about the very subject that that cold open was about, uh, that uh, other libertarian podcaster that you just heard giving the typical libertarian answer to what has always struck me as an excellent question, which is, in a stateless free market libertarian utopia, who where there's no government you know involvement in the economy at all who will build the roads i think it's a good question my first guest uh jason lee bias thinks that uh it would be good or at least better uh not to have public roads so we are going to get into it in just a moment All right. I am now joined by uh, Jason Lee Bias, who is a graduate student in philosophy at the University of Michigan, uh, about an hour away from uh, where I grew up in East Lansing, Michigan. Uh, and uh, he is a writer for the Center for State and Society. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me today, Jason. Happy to be here. Yeah. So I, I thought that one uh, one way that would be fun to, uh, to kind of kick this off um, is you know is by thinking about a objection to libertarianism uh, that a lot of libertarians uh, seem to take extremely unseriously because there are like a thousand memes about this uh, now that I've always thought was a pretty good objection uh, which is uh, if you're you know if you're at least an extreme libertarian you're not a you're not a uh, a minarchist, you know, who thinks we can have a, a, you know, who who doesn't like, you know, who doesn't like welfareism, but thinks we could have a minimal state. But you're like you're kind of libertarian, you know, a center for a stateless society. You know, we shouldn't have a state at all. Uh, then, uh, then who, you know, who will build the roads? Uh, and and that, you know, as I said, always struck me as a pretty good as a pretty good objection. Uh, but uh, I think you know I, I very often see you know libertarians kind of like blowing this off or you know making it a punchline. Uh, you know what about the roads? Uh, but uh, I, I did see an article, and, and I should say before we start talking about this that it, it is an old article. You're, you know your thinking on this may have you know evolved in various ways since then. Uh, but I did see an article about this by you. Uh, you know where where you took a line that I haven't seen anybody else take before about this, which is to say, um, instead of either just, you know, blowing off, uh, 
you know, blowing off the question uh, or uh, or having some sort of answer along the lines of no, don't worry. Uh, we really, you know, the free market really will lead to a, an interstate highway system in its own way. Uh, your answer seems seems to be, or seem then to be, um, nobody, uh, at least at least for the kind of roads you're thinking of, nobody, and that's a good thing. Yeah. So the I do want to say I do want to note to be clear I am not an economist or anything like that, so I'm not a specialist on uh, kinds of questions about. Uh, practical functionality on a lot of these things. But um, I do think so that roads uh, just road simpliciter are going to, that's that you don't need the state for that. Right. Um, historically, mo- there's been several privately built roads and not just privately owned and operated like toll roads, but roads that are free roads, right. Community kind of operated more than by like a private company. Those have existed historically but what seems notable, at least, is the interstate highway system as we know it. Um, I don't know of um, the, it, it's possible that you could have something similar to an interstate highway system. But I don't I'm not going to get into the details on that, because the thing that's more important to me is that we don't quite know what is the best means of transportation. And part of the. Um, answer here might be something more along the lines of where we're going. We don't need roads um, because namely uh, alongside the creation of the interstate highway system, there's at least a couple problems that you might say um, that uh, would be benefits of not having interstate highway system. One uh, obvious environmental issues, right? Uh, The car culture, um, and the way that that might contribute to climate change or any other environmental issues. And then secondly, um, it can also be kind of a subtle uh, subsidy for kind of like big box stores, right? Things that rely on um, using the free for them uh, interstate highway system and doing wear and tear to them in a way that is totally free. Um, but obviously they're getting significantly more benefit from than smaller uh, kinds of businesses. So those are two kinds of reasons why it might be good to have something other than interstate highway system. But then the question is, of course, okay, well, what is that thing? And here I'm going to be a lot less persuasive, but essentially the thought is we don't really know what the other thing might be because that's been artificially crowded out by the kind of assumption of an interstate highway system being the way to go and massive state, uh, both state financing and state violence in the sense of uh, seizing people's property for the creation of the interstate highway system. And so we don't know what alternatives there might be. Yeah. So, I I mean, I I would be very worried about that, uh, you know, that lack of knowledge because, uh, because, you know, if maybe there's a, there's an alternative then maybe it would be an acceptable one, uh, but mm-hmm. uh, but that's a that's a big uh, you know that's a big maybe, and you know I, right. I certainly hear the importance of the uh, environmental concern about you know some of the uh, you know some of the practices uh, of of these companies, and and there there might be a case uh, for for more you know localism about uh, about distribution networks, uh, but if if that is the if, if that is the best solution. Uh, I would I would rather have that be um, 
I would rather have that be something that's that's collectively and, and democratically decided that uh, that we, you know, that we we want to have more localism about distribution, and you know, we can we can take regulatory steps uh, to uh, to do that because uh, because I, I get really you know obvious obviously it's true that you know big corporations have massive political influence and and are able to uh, get all sorts of you know in many, many ways, right? You know, they get more out of state infrastructure than they, than they, than they put into it, right? No doubt about that. Uh, but at the same time, uh, like one really good thing about having an interstate highway system, for example, is that uh, we don't, you know, that, uh, that I can, um, you know, that I can drive from, uh, you know, from, from Atlanta, you know, where, where I teach to, uh, to Michigan, you know, Michigan, you know, where my parents live, uh, without, um, you know, with like, like that I, I can, that I can do that like relatively inexpensively, uh, as a, as an individual person, uh, and because I'm, I'm not that worried about, you know, I mean, like a big, like, like a sufficiently profitable corporation, you know, like, yeah, they, where they're going, they don't need roads. They, I mean, like, it might be very nice and convenient for them to have roads, right? You know, but they could probably, in a world, you know, in a world without roads, you know, they could, they could probably fly a lot of their merchandise. Uh, and, and, and so, I, so we're, you know, we're worried about mobility for, uh, for regular people. Uh, that we, you know, so like if, in other words, if it's bad for the environment or just unfair in terms of their ability to profit, you know, in, in, off of the public purse for them to, uh, to be able to, to move their, their stuff around like this, then okay, we can do things to, to stop them from, from doing that. But I don't want the collateral damage of that to be uh, that, that ordinary, you know, working class people uh, can't, you know, move around freely uh, in ways that having something like an interstate highway system uh, really permits and to, to maybe, you know, pivot a little bit before I throw back to you from like the extremely specific details of this example to some much more general concerns about what a, um, you know, governmentless market, you know, society might, you know, might mm. look like, um, you know, one of the, uh, one of the really bad things that, you know, like you can have public roads that, that are, that are toll roads, but at least, at least we all get some sort of collective input about uh, about what the uh, the tolls are going to be set at. You know, the the people who set the tolls are at least appointed by people uh, that that we elect. You know, which which might not be an ideal level of democratic input, but it's something. Uh, whereas uh, if you have uh, if you have private roads, then the toll is whatever the to, is whatever the road owner says it is, uh, and and it, it you know and it might or might not you know, be profitable for any particular uh, road owner to, to set that at a reasonable place. It's almost certainly, it's almost certainly not going to be set at nothing. Uh, and if, uh, and you could also, you know, I mean, look, if, if I'm a, uh, if I'm a private road owner without violating any, um, you know, libertarian principles about aggression or anything, like I could just decide that I don't want people, you know, like, you know, that, that there are certain categories of people I just don't want traveling on my roads. Uh, and this is, and it, it's certainly not the, you know, going to be the case that, oh, I'll just take my business, you know, to another road. Maybe I can to a certain extent, but roads don't seem like the sort of good that you're going to have this vast crowded marketplace of different people operating different roads from the same starting point to the same ending point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's there's a lot there, obviously. Um, 
I'm certainly skeptical of the thought that um, that ordinary people benefit more from the interstate highway system than uh, places like Walmart. Um, certainly Walmart is moving significantly larger amount of goods. I guess Walmart certainly makes more money off them. Right. Yeah. They technically could fly, but that seems pretty onerous. Um, things like that. Um, and, and I certainly don't want to say that I'm against roads. Like and there are some people. So for example, I want to, I, I might be wrong about this, but I think social anarchist Paul Goodman uh, was supported banning roads or something like that, which is, no banning cars, but still banning. Yeah. yeah, right. So I'm 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 a critic of I'm critical of like like car culture at least in institutional way, but I'm not going to be like that. I do think that there are benefits to having roads. Right. Um, one thing that I do want to note um, is you. I might have misunderstood you, but it yeah. seemed like you were assuming that um, any road that ex- would exist in a stateless libertarian. Uh, society would be privately owned by a specific party. Right. Um, I don't think that's correct. So, okay. so a lot of like anarcho-capitalists are going to talk like that, obviously some of them very explicitly, but I don't think, uh, I think we have to separate uh, state property and common property or public property and just generic sense. Right. Um, so historically speaking, a lot of the privately created roads are not privately owned roads, right? They're going to be uh, kind of privately created by someone who perhaps initially um, has some financial interest in there being a road there, but then it's kind of donated to the community in a certain sense. And now why would that be the case? There's all sorts of reasons there, um, but historically that is something that has happened. Um, And similarly, you could have people building roads themselves, right? And there's no reason to assume that it would have to be privately owned by every, um, every single one would have to be privately owned, right? And historically, many of these have had uh, been free roads without tolls, right? But the more important thing to me um, is the assumption here that there's some sense in which we're really all owning the interstate highway system, or we really all have uh, collective input into it, because I would want to question that. Um, it doesn't seem to me that I have much control over the interstate highway system, right? There are certainly um, private parties in the sense of individual people who have a lot more control over that than I do. And I think the original article uh, that you're pointing to, it's again, it's been like seven years. I, I read it really quickly before we did this. But one of the points I'm putting out there is there was a controversy a few years ago in New Jersey, where there was kind of a artificially uh, created traffic jam because of some political interests by that by the people who were in control of like the New Jersey Port Authority, and uh, there was some wor- uh, suspicion that maybe Chris Christie was involved, so on and so forth. But the thing that was notable to me was that someone was able to just pettily uh, just decide that we're going to sh- have a traffic jam here. Mm-hmm. And that's that's something that happens when you have centralized control of of some important good like roads. And of course, you're going to say, well, that would also be the case with the private road. And of course, it is. But the, well, but it's, the, it's not just that it could also be the case of the private road, but that the difference between those two situations, right, a libertarian utopia where, and and we can talk about how likely it is that you know that 
roads would be donated to the community or would mm. just be held as kind of commons. But if we are talking about the scenario where there is a road owner, uh, then then what Chris Christie is accused of doing in uh, in New Jersey with Bridgegate, uh, mm-hmm. the, the difference is that in such a society, uh, that would be completely legal. That like mm-hmm. it, it wouldn't be a one-time thing that was a giant scandal uh, that ended his career. Uh, it would mm-hmm. be something that could happen right out in the open with no hiding it and no pretense and 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 just mm-hmm. look. This is my road. I can I can do with it what I like. Which I think to me gets back to that point about okay. Do you control the roads? Do I control the roads? Well, it's certainly true. Not going to get any argument from me on this point that there are some people who have much more control over state goods uh, than other people. That's that's true both in the sense, both in the Chris Christie sense, that uh, that you are going to have um, you know elected officials who who have more more control over it than the rest of us. Although again, we you know like uh, what Christie uh, did there is illegal and, and, uh, and was, and, and was a major scandal, you know, when, when it came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but it's, but it's certainly true that anything that's, that's state owned, uh, you know, will be, if it's a democratic state, you know, there'll be elected officials who, who are controlling it. If it's an undemocratic state, there'll be unelected officials. Uh, and it's also true though. And I, I take this to be part of your point uh, that there are just people who, due to their position in society, have more influence over the state than than other people, and and you're um, obviously, you know, I mean, obviously this is a this is a, a point of of commonality, right? I mean, I certainly agree that we have a ruling class, uh, but what I would say is, do we have, you know, do we do we control the roads, right? You and I right. control the roads. And I think that's not a that's not a simple yes or no question. I think it's not you know yes we do or no we don't, but we do to some extent. Uh, and what I and what I think is that we don't to nearly enough of an extent because we have a ruling class because mm-hmm. our system, uh, you know, is is very severely and completely democratic. Uh, but having some control over it is still better than having uh, no control over them and just having a system where the road owner could do a bridge gate out in the open without hiding it and covering up, covering it up like, uh, like, like, like Chris, uh, Chris Christie did, you know, the, so, or, you know, we could have, you know, a similar discussion about, you know, about like the, the police, you know, that like the, uh, that is as, as bad and racist and oppressive as the police are. The one thing that sounds scarier than that to me is a privately owned police department that, you know, that wasn't even theoretically accountable to the people that it's brutalizing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, the thing that I would want to want to emphasize there is while it is of course true that you could have a out in the open, similar thing with a private re- I would say we're talking about an actually literally privately owned road. Right. Yeah. Uh, in that case, it's of course po- possible, but also people would not be required to finance it. Right. And you are required to finance it in, in this scenario uh, that we actually live in, right? You're right. required to continue financing it. There is no alternative to to the state's private roads, owns roads that are privately owned by the state. Um, and that's not the sort of, and I don't think um, the solution to this is, is hoping for a centralized power structure to end up benefiting someone outside of the ruling class, because of course they do. But when they do, it tends to be because uh, it's necessary to maintain kind of enough uh, support in order to maintain the power of, of the state 
and its clients in the first place, right? Um, that it's not that, that whatever the state is going to do is going to be the things that people who have better access to the state are going to, are going to want it to do. Right. And so you're going to expect that the, the, uh, the benefits and the uh, kind of uh, the benefits of state ownership are going to be only those things that are necessary to maintain the power, right? It's not going to be, um, it's, it's, it's ultimately going to have to, uh, it's ultimately still going to be the interest of, of the already powerful because those will be the ones with greater access to how this, to deciding how the state uses its resources. Right. Yeah. So, so again, I mean, this, this all seems to be a way of saying that, that we have a ruling class and, and it, uh, it can be successfully pressured to, Mm-hmm. Uh, to to give concessions to, uh, to 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 everybody else, but you know, but in, until you you know change the fundamental economic structure of society, uh, it is ultimately you know going to be in charge, uh, which is you know which, which is certainly which is certainly true. But again, I, I go back to the difference between having in you know having severely limited control over something because okay, we can vote out the people who uh, the people who are controlling it. Uh, but you know our, our elections are undemocratic in various ways and etc. Uh, so having severely limited uh, public control over something to having no public control and no mm-hmm. pretense of public control. And when I start thinking about the scenario where there's no pretense of public control over things that are that are currently um, you know that are, that are currently publicly owned that are currently state goods, then uh, then I, I think I'm not very comforted. You know, by the thought that oh, at least I won't have to to finance it. You know, I mean, like if, if mm-hmm. I'm uh, if 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 I'm worried, you know, if I'm a poor person and I'm worried about uh, whether I'm I'm going to uh, whether I'm going to be allowed uh, to uh, to travel on a road owned by a rich person, whether they're going to jack up the rates so much that it's going to be inaccessible to me, or whether mm-hmm. they're just going to decide, you know, that that I'm on the ban list. You know that that I'm just on the blacklist of people who aren't allowed to be on their road. You know because uh, you know maybe because of my political activities. Mm. Uh, then it's not very much comfort to me to say, well, at least I don't have to finance it. In fact, the fact that I'm not financing it, the fact that it is private, you know, rather than a collective effort, would be my whole problem. Mm-hmm. Right. So again, I don't think um, I think you're, I think you're assuming way more. Uh, collective input than uh, uh, input from the average person than is plausible. However, um, while it is true that that the private input, okay, let me back up. So there's two kinds of scenarios that I think one of we're assuming we're kind of coming at this with two different scenarios in mind here. So um, the scenario you seem to have in mind is. Uh, that that for some of these important resources, that it's really it's ultimately going to be some private monopolist, right, who owns so much of it that there really is no alternative, right? So well, really, even if they only own a, a two mile stretch of it, all uh-huh. these same problems still apply. Um. So, so okay. So so what I was going to say was that what looks a lot more realistic to me is that someone might own one. Uh, two mile stretch of something and then that person be particularly bad. Right. Whereas there are realistically all sorts of normal routes that you can go through and it doesn't really serve that, uh, 
so yeah. it doesn't really impact that your life that much. Although, that seems much more plausible to me. Well, uh, I think it would still, uh, you know, impact your life. Like, like a, I, I think that, um, I mean, if if you do have have road owners, even even stretch of road owners, which which I do find, by the way, I should say, I do find more plausible than thinking that there are roads that are just going to be kept as commons, right? There is, I mean, you're right. There is a distinction between public property in the sense of state property and, you know, the commons, like, you know, like, like what existed in, you know, medieval England, uh, that kind of, you know, that kind of commons or lots of commons areas that still exist all over the place now. Uh, but things that are commons, but not, you know, state property tend to be things that whatever sort of upkeep, you know, they require, are things that, you know, that, that could just sort of happen in a very informal way. A lot of them don't literally don't require any upkeep, you know, like a lake or something like that. Uh, I, I think that for something like, a, you know, and I think that there are roads in previous historical eras that are much more like that, right? You know, that like, sure, maybe you need to clear some trash over all that, but like a fairly informal arrangement without really right. worried about paying anybody to do it could mm-hmm. get it done. And certainly if you're thinking about things like interstate highways, you know, that's, that's going to be a very different situation. Right. Yeah. So, so if you only had like, let's say that you're on, uh, you're on the, you know, you're on the blacklist, right? which, uh, and as we use that metaphor, let's remember that the original blacklist uh, was, uh, uh, was, was a largely, was largely a, a private, you know, free market affair uh, that this is that there was some political pressure uh, but this is this is something that was like made and enforced by the Hollywood Hollywood studios privately, right? So you're you're on, you know, you're on a blacklist, and so there are certain, uh, you know, the owners of a two mile stretch here, the owners of a two mile stretch there, uh, you know, won't let you travel on theirs. How much does it inconvenience you? Well, I mean, look, how much did how much did Bridgegate inconvenience mm-hmm. anybody? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in some ways, not very much because there was like one day that mm-hmm. they uh, that they that they weren't able to. Uh, that they weren't able to quickly uh, travel over this mm-hmm. one particular bridge, uh, that there were doubtless alternate routes that some people mm-hmm. ended up taking that day. Uh, but in some ways, uh, quite a bit, right? I think there was like, I think, I think there was one person who died, you know, because they, they, didn't, uh, they didn't get to a hospital in a timely way. Mm-hmm. And so I think when you think about, you know, a two-mile stretch, 10-mile stretch of road, uh, you know, being, being something that somebody for various reasons uh, couldn't, uh, couldn't travel on, uh, you know, whether it's the blacklist scenario, whether it's that like they, they you know, that like today, you know, it's like the gas station, you know, that like, you know, you don't know what the price is going to be, you know, for traveling on the road and, and, until you until you get there. Uh, could it impact your life? Well, uh, I mean, it, I think one, just having to worry about these headaches, am I allowed to travel here? Or am I not allowed to travel there? I think makes us in a deep sense less free the same way that a black family traveling through the South was less free uh, because, because they, they knew that there were lots of restaurants that, uh, that they, um, you know, that they couldn't, that they couldn't eat at some, they could, but you know, lots, you know, lots, they couldn't because uh, it was legal for uh, restaurant owners to uh, you not know, just legal, it legally required, but going, uh, yeah. legally required in some places, but there were you know, overwhelmingly they, legally required. Yeah. Okay. Let's, yeah. I, I think that's very important for that. I, I, I think, I think it's, I, I mean, there were restaurants, you know, it's, it's not that it wasn't as a black person in the South, there were no restaurants you weren't, you know, you weren't allowed to, uh, you weren't allowed to, to eat at. Uh, they have uh, that uh, there, there were widespread laws, you know, it was, it was a patchwork of public, uh, public and private. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I do think that if the section of the civil rights act that Rand Paul had a problem with, 
you know, that that man that outlawed, you know, voluntary segregation. I think if that wasn't there, I'm pretty sure that it would still be the case that a black family traveling through the South, there would be lots of restaurants in certain regions that they couldn't eat at. Uh, that's an empirical claim, of course, but I mean, it's, it's, it's one. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's one that I feel very confident about, but, uh, but, but going back to, to the roads, uh, what would, uh, uh, yeah, you wouldn't, um, if you weren't able to travel, you know, stretch here or stretch there, then, then one, uh, you'd have to spend a lot more time uh, driving. Uh, and two, uh, in some situations like the Bridgegate one, like, hey, you need to go to a, get to a hospital right now. That could impact your life quite severely. And it, 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 it seems to me that it's, it is a public good. And, you know, how much control do we have over it? Well, one sort of, you know, very limited. It should be much more. But one sort of control that we have over it is that um, I think there are some pretty hard limits to uh, tolls that, that, that can be set without constituents getting upset about it. Uh, another, another limit that we have over it, uh, another form of control that we have over it is that uh, you're never going to get a state that is, is going to just pass a law empowering the governor to uh, whimsically you know, punish his political opponents uh, by, causing, uh, by causing traffic jams because the public wouldn't stand for it. Uh, and, and again, how much would it impact your life? Well, you know, maybe on some days you couldn't get to the hospital when you needed to and people would die. On other days, you just had severe inconvenience. But I think the, the real question for me is, is it the case that you can go through life without having to worry about this, that you just know mm-hmm. that you have a right just, just by virtue of being a person to, to, to drive on, you know, to, to drive I guess not literally on every road because there, you know, because there are, you know, there are private roads, but, you know, damn near any road, you know, anytime you want to go from point A to point B, you have a right to, uh, to drive on those roads and versus um, like, like how important a kind of freedom is that versus the, the freedom of, of um, you know, the, the freedom of the freedoms of property owners that would be uh, that that would be enforced in in this setup, or or for that matter, our, our freedom not to finance things, and that's obviously just a very deep. Uh, that's obviously just just a just a very deep gap, but I think it's one that's worth highlighting. But in any case, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna give you the uh, uh, the last word here because because you have been a you have uh-huh. been a good sport and very thoughtful and uh, and I and and I don't want to take up too uh, too much right. more of your time, but uh, uh-huh. but please. Yeah. So I. I would like to come on again because this is the road stuff is very much outside of my normal area. So again, I'm not an economist. Uh, I know just a little bit about this. So for example, it might seem weird, the, the roads being commons, but historically prior to the roads we know now, that is historically the, the predominant form of roads is, is common is as commons rather than uh, private toll roads, but leaving that aside, kind of, uh, I want to kind of reiterate um, we, we shouldn't be comparing like an ideal state to a realistic um, stateless uh, libertarian free society. Instead, we should be comparing a realistic version of either. Right. And if a realistic version of either, is it the case that um, certain certain stretches of road are um, going to be, uh, just flimsy, flimsily uh, declared um, if that you're flimsily not able to travel certain stretches of road uh, in 
a in the existing society, not always in in so directly, uh, although historically, of course, might be some issues there. But it is the case that when you're driving on a state road, you know that you might uh, get pulled over for speed traps for all sorts of reasons. Right. And the state police force, which has a unique special right over um, to enforce the law that is not questioned by anyone else. Um, that gives them special abilities to decide that it's time for you to go to jail, to um, to use force in ways that are that are not uh, with very different uh, levels of uh, of uh, standards between them and the average person on defense, things like that. Um, that when you have state provi- if you want to have the state providing you with roads, you're going to have to come along with. Those things you mentioned earlier, uh, libertarians who are uh, minarchists, meaning that they believe in, uh, they don't believe in uh, a lot of state functions, but they do believe in uh, courts, police, and military being state-owned. For me, my libertarianism, this is something I would like to talk about mm-hmm. more specifically if I come on, if we do this again, um, is for me, the strongest case for libertarianism is a functional political economy in which we can live without the night watchman state that we're not that we can have a a civilized society that does not include the police the military or government courts right Um, because for me the monopoly power on those things it's often going to involve a lot of as you correctly put it concessions but those will be concessions meant to maintain their power um, to use as they see fit. And so again, I'm not, I will, I will happily concede that I'm not the most well-versed on these roads questions specifically, but for me, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is um, are we, um, how, what is the, the comparative benefit of, getting rid of things like the police prisons so on and so forth and what what does the world that look like that is it wor- is it worth a lot of these concessions um to keep putting up with the police the military so on and so forth well, and, and, and also is that the question like the is, are those the alternatives to have a, a state a ruling class and some good concessions uh, to uh, to have uh, to to have a free market libertarian utopia, or is there a third alternative uh, where where we where we have a uh, uh, where we have a, a, a democratic socialist state and we don't have a ruling class? But uh, but I think and, and I think that that I think that that issue you identified um, about uh, about the police pulling people over, I think is exactly the place to pick up when you come back because okay great uh, because I, I think that's the I think, uh, I think the the public versus private versions of those functions. I I, I think you know like like I wanted, um, you know I wanted to do the road thing you know just because I hear this all the time you know as a meme and I was so fascinated when I saw you read that article, and uh, and also it's just fun because like I want to I want to title this episode no but seriously what about the roads, Uh Uh, but uh, but I, I I think that that. I think that as far as advancing the conversation in interesting ways, you know, public versus private versions of all of those functions that you just identified right. 
I think that's the place to go. So I hope you do come back. And okay, great. Yeah. When we do, when you do, that's that's the plan that we're going to pick up right there. Excellent. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you. I'm now joined by uh, Nicholas Kiersey, who is the host of the Fully Automated uh, podcast and is professor of political science at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. Thank you so much for coming on today, Nicholas. Uh, ben, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, so I thought that I, um, you know, I, I listened a little uh, a little while ago to uh, to your commentary on. Uh, the results of the election and and the ways that that some left wing academics uh, you knew right. were, were were taking it and interpreting it, yeah. uh, and uh, and I thought an interesting jumping off point for today might be to talk a little bit about the academic background that you've come out of and and mm-hmm. in what ways either either that it informs your politics or that your politics are about rebelling against it. Yeah, uh, thank you for the question. Uh, I definitely uh, would not say that, uh, you know, uh, I uh, come from a background in identity politics or anything of this nature, but I I have always sort of considered myself, broadly speaking, someone in the space between Marxism and post-structuralism. That is my training. Uh, That is my academic background. I'm an international relations theorist. I... uh, got my PhD 10 years ago from Virginia Tech, looking at sort of globalization and what, what you know, studying Foucault using um, this concept of his governmentality, which, you know, is a kind of a, a way to sort of strip away ideology from the necessity of having to be embedded in materialist structures. Now, I mean, that was me then. I mean, that was a rather different proposition, but that's where I was. So uh, coming out of that kind of idea, I think, uh, or that kind of education, that kind of formation, um, I, I I had the world in my sights a certain way. And I think I was very much the product of an age, actually. Um, you know, a lot of people around my time uh, of uh, graduation uh, were uh, up to their necks in people like Agamben, studying uh, concepts like biopolitics and how, of course, the policing of the world through the global war on terror uh, sort of indicated a a kind of a a ubiquitous securitization of our planet. And um, it uh, was, uh, of course, also in the air at the time, a very strong uh, anti-war movement and sentiment. We're talking about the the 2000s here. So... um, yeah, I think I think a lot of us were kind of basically intuitively or instinctively libertarian at that time. So um, I came out of that kind of consciousness academically, and uh, I think I I understand um, to a certain degree uh, some of the impulses behind left academia because I I think I'm a product of it. But um, since my graduation, um, I think I've been on something of a journey where I have engaged in. Um, maybe a closer reading of Foucault than I would have done in the past. And of course, I'm talking very much about my own research at the moment. Um, And I think um, I'm at a point now where I'm satisfied to say that I've discovered that maybe the Foucault that was described to me in academia is not the one that I actually believe exists. And it's interesting to make these discoveries after the fact, as it were. You know, um, a lot of the primary sources that were given uh, to read um, that... uh, um, you know, off Foucault's, they're, they're wonderful sources and they're very useful, but um, it was only late in the day of my PhD that 
some of his unpublished lectures were first translated into English. And I don't know, Ben, if you follow this uh, kind of stuff uh, with much detail. This is, uh, I appreciate very much in the territory of what our, our friend uh, Adam Proctor calls mm -hmm. dusty books. <laughs> I, I don't want to get too nitty gritty, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, these unpublished lectures do give us over to a very different view on Foucault, I think, one that uh, was uncannily aware of the concept of neoliberalism even before it became dominant in our lives as a political force in formation. Um, one, uh, a Foucault that was intimately aware of uh, transformations going on within capitalism, who was not afraid to speak of it, who um, called explicitly for the adaptation of his concepts for a socialist project. And what um, I'm excited about working on these days, I, I don't know if it'll be much the topic of our, of our um, interview today, but um, I mean, certainly in my own work moving forward, I'm, I'm kind of interested in pushing back on um, some of the language used in uh, uh, popular publications like Jacobin and elsewhere, where, you know, you find Foucault sort of described very much as uh, a figure um, that academic Foucauldians would probably agree exists, but that I, I'm not personally sure that he does. You know, I, I, I have in my mind this much more Marxist figure. So, so that's my training. That's my background. That's what I'm working on uh, these days. Uh, I'm working on a book on socialist governmentality, responding to uh, Foucault's challenge, as I read it, that, that this is what we need to do uh, to figure out a theory of the state for the left. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I've, I have to admit my my bias here is that uh, when I look at a lot of the uh, the fuzzy thinking on on the contemporary left, yeah. uh, thinking about like um, this incredibly vague sort of notion of oppression as being something yes. that that, yes. that en encompasses both you know, economic exploitation and prejudice and right it's on. all kind of the same thing. And it's, you know, yeah. whatever, like, like I, I tend to, um, I tend to suspect Foucault of, 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 of being a big part of the problem, yeah. uh, but, but maybe that's too hasty. No, I, I don't know um, that it's necessarily incorrect, um, but I would uh, have my sights on um, other um, figures uh, and I would be attributing blame to other figures much quicker than I'd be going after Foucault, who, in my view, is a much more subtle thinker and and certainly not um, the uh, identity politics um, uh, uh, scholar that he's uh, made out to be uh, in some of the um, leftist commentary today. Um, you know, and, and, and maybe I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too, Ben, because, you know, I love Jacobin. Anyone who knows me knows I love reading that stuff. I'm in DSA. I'm down with the program. I'm a Bernie bro, all the rest, you know. So maybe I am just trying to, trying to have my cake and eat it too, where I'm like, hey, we can all be friends. But um, no, I actually do. Like, I, th I think there's, I think I've, I've had um, some interviews on my podcast in the last uh, 12 months or so. Um, with scholars who've really done deep dives into this stuff and, and what they're surfacing um, out of the sort of um, unpublished or lesser known essays of Foucault, you know, uh, that have not really made it in the English speaking world, um, you know, it leaves me uh, dumbfounded. There's a wonderful essay um, in, um, published in Viewpoint magazine. Um, called the mesh of power and anyone reading that coming away from it thinking Foucault wasn't a Marxist, you know, it's, it's a tough one, you know, now he's not just any old kind of Marxist and we all know there's a hundred different kinds 
out there. Um, Foucault would be a very kind of um, non-economically determinist in the final instance Marxist, but very uh, much aware of capitalism as a force in our lives, you know, no doubt about it. So um, I'm Fair sure enough. you didn't invite me on here to talk about Foucault. For the no, I mean, no, but I, I, I am, I, there's, there's a reason I'm not cutting you off. I'm fascinated to hear it. Uh, but, uh, but you, you know, you, you mentioned um, identity politics, you know, which, right. which, which gets us closer to some of what you were talking about in, uh, in that post, uh, post-election commentary, although also the rest of what we've been talking about is not irrelevant to that because, because you, you were, you were talking about uh, critical theorists and, and, uh, and their, yeah. their views on this stuff. And, yeah. you know, people, you know, people like Judith Butler, right. Who, who right. now know is a big uh, Kamala Harris uh, donor. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and so there, there is a, uh, there is a link here. Yeah. And I'm trying to, you know, I think one of the things in my, Maybe maybe I'm not necessarily writing on this topic, but I'm talking about it in my podcast. I'm I'm blogging about it because it seems to be just such a train wreck uh, area right now. Is uh, you know how do we square the circle? How do we begin to put together the story of 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 how we got here? Where what? How do we account for the fact that these you know primo names in academia um, are standing so hard for Biden and Kamala? And like not just like making the careful argument that we need to understand we're making compromises here this isn't perfect no this is not like th- these people are full on embracing um uh, the idea that it's time high time we had um you know uh, an african american woman or an indian woman uh woman of color in uh the white house in some way shape or form uh they're, they 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 think it's our duty to elevate her and uh, all of this, I would say, without any kind of scrutiny, um, uh, because, you know, if anyone is uh, open or, or vulnerable, once you start scrutinizing her, it's Kamala Harris. And so I just I, 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 I ponder this because I'm I find it totally mystifying um, how the system that gave me my education and uh, many of the people that we look up to as, uh, you know, and who are frequently cited in the literature can end up producing uh, this kind of discourse now. Um, and in my own field, um, it's very uh, profound right now. I mean, I'm an international relations scholar by training. Uh, so that's a like a lesser known uh, subfield, subfield, subfield of political science. And um, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a stepchild in some ways. But um, even there, you see uh, just tons of people um, in social media um, embracing uh, Kamala Harris. And um, here's the remarkable thing is, is just, you know, the... <clears throat> very, very quick um, way in which many of these figures will um, counterattack in social media and say things like stay in your lane. Um, yes. the, the minute you uh, begin to raise any criticisms um, and, and it, it was actually really seeing that, that sort of insistence on staying in one's lane uh, that prompted me to do that audio essay I did in my podcast a couple of weeks ago, uh, because that's really where I, um, just was like, okay, this, this, there's something strange here. Like what, what, what is, what is it? What, what, what are, we need some word for this phenomena where, uh, we see people 
so incapable of handling any criticism of this person. Um, and, and it led me to think about things that I've heard you talk about, Adam talks about, um, you know, race, racial essentialism effectively. And, and I think there's a kind of a disavowal function or what I've called in my audio essay, <clears throat> excuse me, um, a displacement function um, that uh, kicks in uh, whenever this point is raised. Uh, it seems to me that um, the academic left is has there's, there's some sort of function at work where it needs to have heroic subaltern figures to make assumptions about and leverage in in their output in their in the way they're appraising the world. Yeah. So, yeah, this is interesting because it's not just that, look, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't necessarily expect, you know, people, anybody in, in academia uh, is, is by definition, you know, yeah. coming out of uh, what's sometimes called the, you know, professional managerial class, even if, right. you know, even if, especially in the U S context there, um, you know, people, uh, you know, people like I was, you know, for, for years adjuncting or whatever, sort of, you know, lumpenized sector of the uh, professional managerial class uh, that, and, and so we shouldn't expect people who, who come out of that background to, you know, instinctively identify with, you know, socialist politics or anything like that, certainly. Uh, but, uh, but I think that, I think you've put your finger on the, like there, there is more that's going on here. And I think you've, you've put your finger on some of what the more is, uh, and so there, there are a few things here that are that are worth breaking down. Uh, so you mentioned uh, essentialism. So you know, mm-hmm. uh, so so just for for anybody who's uh, who's listening or watching, uh, who's who's not versed in the you know uh, leftist inside baseball here, uh, essentialism, like racial essentialism, for example, is the uh, is the view that there is some. Uh, there is some uh, essential feature that's that's uh, that's shared by by everybody in a certain racial category, for example, uh, that um, comes out. For example, well, I, th- I think it. Uh, I think one of the one of the most blatant ways that it's come out since the election has been all of the talk of you know black voters or black women, you know, as as if these were uh, yes. undifferentiated categories, you know, that 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 mm-hmm. like every black woman, you know, shares in the magical black woman essence, you know, and, and, and has politics that flow straight from that essence rather than, um, you know, rather than there, it being the case that there are, you know, black women who, who are workers and black women who are bosses and black women who are tenants and black women who are landlords and black women who are, you know, DNC ish mayors or, you know, ordering tear, you know, protesters tear gassed and black women who are being, you know, tear gassed by them. All of that stuff is, is just sort of eliminated. And uh, all of those class differences, all those ideological differences are, are treated as, as, as unimportant. And, and, you know, black women in that, in that example are, are treated almost as being, uh, almost as being like a, like a hive mind that, um, you know, you, yeah. you're told, well, if, if you, uh, if you're not excited about Kamala Harris being the vice president, then, you know, you're, then you're going to, I've, I've seen people say this, you know, like on Twitter that, you know, all black women are, are, are going to have a problem with that, yeah. uh, which, yeah. you know, of course the first instinct, which is correct as far as it goes is to respond to that by starting to rattle off some names uh, of, of, you know, of black women who disagree with that political perspective. Uh, but, right. but there's a, there's a deeper thing going on here. 
uh, which which is uh, which is this racial essentialism and the role that it plays in uh, in these people's psychodrama. You know what you're talking about. You know needing to have you know oppressed people that you know that they can vicariously identify with at the same time as using them as a prop to support their liberal politics. Um, and then, and then there's this issue about lanes, which I, which I really want to get into, but if you want to yeah, speak on the list that first. Came up even again recently in that uh, Stephanie rule interview with Bernie, right? Just the other day, she's talking about Bernie needing to stay in his lane about, uh, you know, as a, as a, as basically a failure of a Senator who's never been able to pass a bill in his life, you know, shouldn't you stay in your lane and not, and, you know, let other, let, you know, and the implicit subtext was of course, like, Joe Biden's putting together this multiracial, multicultural White House. Why not let these people be the voices that guide and decide for us our fate in uh, the next year of COVID, right? Um, and I, I have to say, I, you know, I take my hat off to Bernie Sanders for keeping his, um, you know, steam in his ears at that point in time, because uh, I, I would have, I would, I don't know how I would have responded had I been sitting there on that conversation. But I mean, again, it's this uh, sort of, uh, sorry about that. Um, the, um, the, uh, let me just put that on. Um, the, 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 the point about the, uh, the racial essentialism, I think, uh, and 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 the, the the idea of a displacement function um, is is really I think important if we're going to try to take on the idea of staying in your lane, right? Uh, um, the um, suspicion I have is that uh, well, there's probably a number of things being displaced when we when we take this on, but the one of the things I think that might be at work here is actually the class position. Um, I think there's a, a tendency for academics to uh, be a little tone deaf when it comes to their own class position. And I, I can't help but wonder if that's kind of what's driving um, some of their um, need to constantly recenter the conversation on these idealized types. You know, you mentioned just a moment ago, and I think, um, you know, we've, we've, We've had uh, so many wonderful interviews online now from Cedric Johnson, Toure Reed, and folks mm -hmm. like this. I think you may have even had a, a couple of conversations with people like that yourself in in, in your various uh, outlets. Um, the um, striking thing that always, uh, you know, that they always say is that uh, you know we, we have more African American people in this country than there are Greeks in Greece, <laughs> than there are Canadians in Canada. And um, we certainly don't impose on those people in those countries anything like the kind of expected political subjectivity um, that we do. Yeah, no, nobody, th nobody thinks there's a there's a Canadian yeah. political and, perspective uh, that all Canadians are going to have by virtue of being Canadian. Yes, and so the interesting thing then about it is. Uh, once you start to introduce a little sort of historical materialism and you look at the transformation, uh, you know, uh, the material transformation within um, the black population in America, you see, uh, I think even Cedric Johnson talks about the reduction of poverty from about 65% to 25%, which is, you know, obviously still leaves a very high poverty rate and that's problematic. But, it, you know, we, we have to acknowledge that interests are going to shift and change as those economic transformations take place. And we are going to see the emergence of 
um, you know, a, a, a black political leadership class, uh, a black PMC uh, class, and and so consequently, uh, discourse is going to cer- to track those interests. It would be irrational, I think, to expect it not to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is a, I mean, this is a big part of the problem. I think we saw in in this last election that Democrats. Uh, thought they uh, they had the votes of uh, of all Black and Latino people in the bag, you know, just just as a matter of course, um, and and of course that that didn't you know turn out to be true. I mean, they they uh, they still got certainly you know the overwhelming majority of of the Black vote. That's a very long term historical trend that's going to take a long time to turn around. But uh, but it was a still a smaller uh, majority than it has been in the past. Uh, Trump actually made demographic inroads uh, in, you know, in all sorts of groups, you know, so I mean, that's, that's definitely proof of concept of what you're saying. And of course, um, you know, some people will, will hear all of this as, you know, what's sometimes called, you know, class reductionism, you know, being, you know, being indifferent to or in denial about uh, the, you know, existence or important of racism, you know, of racism. And that that's not at all the point, you know, you don't have to be, um, you know, indifferent to or in denial about, uh, you know, about racism or, you know, any of these other things to see that, uh, that class divisions, uh, it, you know, exist uh, within all of these, uh, within all of these demographic categories uh, and ideological divisions, you know, certainly exist. Uh, within uh, within all these different undifferentiated categories, and and you need to you need to make those uh, you need to make those differentiations and uh, and in fact you know really I mean it's 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 incredibly um, like like it's a strange and condescending exercise you know the way the way that um, that these you know this displacement function that you're talking about you know that because of course nobody wants to say as a liberal academic, you know, uh, that who might, you know, like Judith Butler, uh, you know, support, you know, Kamala, have supported Kamala Harris's, you know, run, run, you know, run for president. Nobody wants to just say, look, uh, I'm a liberal. I, I think that, you know, I, I, I don't support Bernie Sanders because I think he's too far to the left. You know, I disagree with that and, and just leave it at that. You know, that's like a very unsatisfying rhetorical posture, right. uh, especially for people who, um, who see themselves and who see their theoretical contributions as linked to some sort of anti-establishment project. Uh, it's much more satisfying to be like, Hey, I identify with the really, you know, like, like the most oppressed people in society. Yes. And, and that's why I have these politics. Uh, even though, you know, I, I always love pointing to, you know, to polling data since if, if you, you know, if, if you really want to take, you know, even putting aside everything that we just said about internal differentiation within different groups of the population, if if you want to, um, if if you see yourself as serving the interests of some demographic subgroup, uh, then one would think that the first step would be to look at the data to to see what uh, what people in that demographic subgroup think say that they want, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 then see how you can deliver that for them. Uh, and you know, shockingly enough, uh, you know, in, in every poll of you know of Black and Latino voters, uh, the the top issues that they always reference um, as this is these are the most important issues to me are things like jobs and healthcare because they're people and those are the issues that are most important to most people because because they have the most obvious 
um, you know, the most obvious impact on their lives. And, and there is a large, there is a separate discussion to be had for sure about why, uh, you know, why the left, you know, has some of the roadblocks that it has in in, in getting through on those issues where our program lines up with most people's preferences, but, you know, maybe they don't take us seriously as a vehicle to achieve those preferences, but, uh, but this, this business about, about staying in your lanes, right. That, uh, that you're, uh, that it's 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 wrong to uh, to you know to speak out on certain issues uh, if you if you have a certain background. I mean, mm. in the interview you mentioned there are two things going on. One of them is this uh, like ridiculous claim that you know Bernie Sanders is an ineffective politician because as a political minority of one uh, within uh, within the Senate, he hasn't. Uh, you know, he has, you know, like he hasn't co-sponsored a bunch of major bills. (laughs) But of course, you know, he's, he's, that's never been his shtick. His shtick was always the amendment. Right. And if you, on that metric, there's probably very few senators that even in the history of the United States have come close to his, uh, you know, amount of influence in uh, passing legislation. Yeah. I mean, he was the, uh, when he was in the house, he was the amendment king of, uh, of, of Congress. He was called that, you know, and this was, this was Newt Gingrich's Congress. It was in deeply hostile political territory, but he was still able to, to get an enormous amount of amendments through to do things like uh, expand community health centers, you know, build more hospitals for veterans, you know, uh, really concrete measures like this, which was just a smart strategic way to use what power he had, again, as somebody who doesn't have a lot of ideological allies, you know, in, in that institution. Uh, but then like the other part of, of what the interviewer was saying about staying in his lane has to do with, you know, what you said about Joe Biden is, is building such a diverse cabinet. Now, of course, yeah. we all know this is extremely selective. Uh, I don't remember any liberals uh, getting very excited when George W. Bush appointed the first black uh uh, Secretary of State, you know, as uh, Colin Powell, for example, uh, you know, it's 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 only you know it's only exciting. Uh, rep- you know, in two thousand eight, uh, every liberal woman that I knew was mocking the absurdity of the idea that uh, that that she would you know that women you know had some sort of obligation to vote for McCain Palin because Sarah Palin was a woman, you know. So so it only comes out in certain contexts, but you know, in those contexts when it did when it does come out. You know, when it's Democrats, when it's liberals, uh, this is this is treated as as profoundly important. I mean, even relatively good congressmen like uh, Ro Khanna uh, justified his his vote for uh, the waiver uh, for uh, Biden's defense secretary. You know, which is something yes. that, you know norm bustingly uh, is somebody who needed a waiver. You know, because because he was in the military, <laughs> active duty military, so recently, yes. uh, and. Uh, he justified that vote on the grounds that you know representation uh, is is so important, which you know clearly, I mean, I mean it's kind of silly on its own, right? You know, it's like what this is the only black man in the country who could have this job. You know, it has to be him, you know, for the representational uh, the representational victory. Uh, but the, this this thing about lanes, you know, gets yeah. into a related concept at the intersection between the academic things you were talking about mm-hmm. and. Uh, political you know and what we mean by exactly. identity politics and exactly yeah. yeah yeah you know i um you're you're right and um i, I don't it, it's hard for me to sort of even begin to diagram out the causality here because i think you know 
as much as I um, have respect and admiration for um, who writers for writers who take this on, I I think there is a tendency. Uh, to ascribe blame to specific uh, academics and intellectuals as if they are somehow the mastermind or cause of the influence of intersectional uh, concepts, concepts of intersectionality and whatnot in, in our, in our movements today. And I, 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 I guess the way I approach it is I'm a little bit more uh, of the mind that uh, the influence of these ideas is downstream from economic transformations. I think the academic shift and the shift in the movements are downstream from the kinds of phenomena that you would see, for example, described in Adam Curtis's documentary, Hypernormalization, where, of course, uh, the 1970s bequeaths us a world where the left ultimately is defeated and it's our, uh, to, to bring in Jameson and, and Zizek and people like this, excuse me, <clears throat> there is a, a difficulty now that our sense of collective agency has been so destroyed that we can't even imagine an alternative that, as they famously always say, it's easier to understand the end of the world than it is to understand the end of capitalism. So coming at the question then symptomatically, I think what you can start to see is a left that actually doesn't really believe change is possible and in, is, is actually then, um, you know, you know w- w- without any sort of solid footing in the possibility of real change and working towards real change, instead what we do is engage in um, various forms of, of posturing that, uh, uh, you know, allow us to appear um, like we're morally, um, you know, uh, uh, full, uh, you know, broad spectrum human beings, but actually maybe at the same time, not actually be able to deliver very much in terms of substance. Um, And I think um, when that is called into question, that's when you get pushback because there's an entire edifice in academia uh, built around that. It's not necessarily Judith Butler's fault, right? I mean, obviously she's invoked a lot. Hey, if you really wanted to think about the scholars that are probably most to blame with for this, I would say it's the Clown Muff, but you know, that it's that kind of Neo-Gramscianism actually, arguably, which, which might get me in some hot water, but it, reading them, they're the ones that in a sense mapped out for us in the eighties and nineties, the kind of um, third way socialist, right? That, those words shouldn't go well in the same sentence together, but you know, they actually kind of do. Um, but that, that third way socialist approach um, was, was quite, you know, completely delineated by them. Um, Judith Butler, I think is probably not the one that we ought to be going after here. Um, Although that doesn't get her off the hook for sponsoring Kamala Harris uh, so generously in the uh, election cycle, um, her her work I think doesn't. It's hard for me to see necessary connections between her work and 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 the decision to support mm-hmm. Kamala. I think in a sense we're all, you know, her 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 actions in her personal life. I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, but I don't know that our our personal political commitments are always necessarily reflections of our abstract intellectual commitments. Sure. Uh, sure. So For I don't know, sure. uh, but um, yeah, I mean, so yeah, probably th- there's probably some people wanting to throw shoes at their screen right now for me saying that. But I, I, I mean, th- th- everybody th- I is. It. There's I mean, a famous it, clip where Zizek yeah. like says like, you know, if you know, I can't do Zizek impersonation very well, Ben, but um, <laughs> you know, he says like, don't blame Judith Butler for um 
you know the movements today you know that they, they um it, 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 judith butler is the person that always said to us that our identity is a performance and there is no kind of essential there there uh so it's very strange to sort of I hear her being the target of ire from some leftists uh, under the assumption that she somehow is the cause of these sort of notions of essentialization. You know, that's not true. It's, it's, if, if, if you want to understand where the contemporary notions of hegemony come from that drive and animate the left today, you're going to have to start looking at uh, people like Le Clownmuff because they're the ones that, that talk about um reframing Marxism so that it's no longer just a question of the hegemony, um, democratic hegemony of the working class, but the democratic hegemony of as broad a spectrum of groups as possible. So really they're, they're to me, the, the kind of origins of the problem. Um, have I, I've kind of drifted from. Yeah, question. no, no. I, I mean, I think, I think that's, I think those are certainly fair, fair distinctions that yeah. uh, of course, nobody, you know, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised by anybody um, acting politically in, in ways that might not reflect their their abstract theoretical yeah. commitments. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to die on that hill, by the way. I'm not going to die on the hill of defending Judith Butler. So so don't at me online, right? I mean, uh, my, my, <laughs> my, uh, my 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 commitments lie elsewhere. Uh, Jesus, I, I, Nicholas, if you love Judith Butler so much, <laughs> yeah. exactly. uh, just just go yeah. back go back to Ireland where you came from and whatever. <laughs> anyway. Um, but but no, I mean that's that's totally fair. But uh, but I, I think that and and with any of these people, um, you know whether the um, you know the theoretical rationalizations are are downstream from the cultural and political shifts uh, or or you know in some cases contribute to them, uh, it is useful to um, to engage with those those rationalizations. I think for a couple reasons. Uh, most obviously that um, that it, it helps us put our finger on a sort of fuzzy sense of what people might be saying or thinking yeah. and so so if we can if we can put a uh, put a name on you know the ideas and and uh, and, and, and try to think about yeah. what they might mean you know that's 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 helpful for for pushing back against them even if uh, even if the you know, even if the academics aren't really, you know, I mean, we don't want to fall into a left-wing version of the, you know, Jordan Peterson fantasy that, you know, like everything that he doesn't like that, you know, that some, you know, so-called SJW on a call, you know, uh, does, uh, or that he doesn't like in larger culture is somehow the fault of, you know, academics that he doesn't like. Uh, So, uh, so that's a, that's a very fair distinction, but uh, the, the theoretical, you know, rationalization, at least for this idea that, uh, that it's important for people to, uh, to stay in their lane, right. Which yeah. is, which is yes. something I see all the time, all over the place. Like, uh, like as we're having this conversation, mm. I've, I've just been seeing, um, that, uh, so, uh, Jimmy Dore, who I think is kind of an idiot is, uh, trending on, uh, on Twitter, uh, because of a sort of exchange that he was having with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez about bringing right. Medicare for all to, you know, or demanding as a condition for supporting Nancy Pelosi for the speakership that she bring Medicare right. for all uh, to uh, to a vote, uh, which, you know, wouldn't actually mean, of course, that there's any version of the scenario where we get Medicare for all, yeah. but door thinks that the uh, door, you know, door thinks that there's like a strategically good reason to do this. 
uh, be, you know, because that would, you know, force some people who might be hedging their bets on the issue to take a clearer stand. And, you know, who knows, maybe he's right. I'm not sure, but um, I, I don't, I mean, I, I have, you know, maybe you can make a case for that. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't tend to think that his, his takes are often, you know, the result of deep reflection, but who knows, you know, broken clocks. Uh, but uh, I, then, okay, whatever you think about the Jimmy Dore issue, I've then been seeing people responding to it uh, by saying, oh my God, look at these white leftist Bernie bros criticizing the squad that's you know made up of you know women of color you know this this really yeah, shows, you right. know, this really shows us something yes you're uh, right. yeah. and that's the same idea as the stay in your lane stuff uh right. which in academic ease uh is is what's sometimes referred to as uh standpoint epistemology that uh, that right. on uh that that people that that well actually actually you want to i, I could no, give my I, gloss I, on I what that probably... is but do I can probably jump in there with a little bit. Um, the so that's something that's very much um, a preoccupation of mine right now. Um, standpoint epistemology has been around for a long time, and um, the interesting thing about it, I think, is that it's always been a very marginal um, sort of presence. Um, it's it's certainly you know you can, you can see it in some strands of feminism, by no means all. Uh, and the basic proposition is that uh, you have to have an experience of a certain marginal position in our society before you can speak truth about it. And these kinds of concepts, standpoint epistemology, then um, are kind of really the ones that are um, at work uh, when we start to try to think about, you know, common leftist complaints about things like the oppression Olympics. You know, uh, so obviously what's going on there is the idea that, okay, if I have an experience of one marginal position in a society, but then maybe I have another foot in, 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 in another kind of experience that's marginal. So say I'm, um, I don't know, Hispanic, say I'm um, gay, say I'm, uh, you can start to add them up. Maybe I have some kind of um, um, disability of some sort, right? So there I'd have three, three potential uh, places and experiences from which I can speak, um, that adds up to a kind of an injury calculus. And then I am able to, uh, because I've experienced much more kind of marginality than other people who might just be Hispanic or just be gay, then I I have a sort of a greater authority to speak. So the standpoint epistemology, of course, starts from a very interesting place and probably a useful place, which is, of course, like, yeah, I can't, speak for any person really other than myself in, in a way. Um, but um, it can end up in a sort of a political territory where it informs um, highly perspectival uh, assessments of politics that I think um, when pushed to an extreme um, can run contrary to the broader intuitions of the left, which are not necessarily to do with what, divides us and what uh, gives us our singular standpoint, but how to generate a collective, a necessary collective standpoint that we can leverage in order to engage in change. Um, so it's, it's the problem, of course, is then on the table. It's a problem of strategy. How do we uh, build strategy out of a political perspective that is so preoccupied with 
micro, um, uh, you know, injuries and, 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 you know, which of course are very valid and worth considering, but, you know, don't necessarily give us that political leverage. So the, the standpoint epistemology thing then, uh, as I've been sort of observing it framed in academia, and I think it was very, very clear in um, the stay in your lane argument that came out after the election, because there's a lot of things we can say about that election. You know, the, the, the way the, the, the black vote shifted, the way the Hispanic vote shifted, um, the fact, for example, that fewer white men supported Trump proportionally this time around than last time around. Um, and, you, and, you know, so that data does create a, a certain complexity. The fact that Kamala Harris does come from such a PMC background and doesn't at all seem to be someone who has uh, um, the you know, in her politics, a particular sort of compassion for the poor. Um, so, you know, we find ourselves with all of these sorts of data points um, that are very, they're not hard to find. They're very uh, readily available if you're just willing to do a little bit of research. Confronted with this reaction where she, you know, any kind of criticism of her is responded to with stay in your lane. And um, that is why I feel we need to start talking about uh, something that I'm actually very uncomfortable talking about, which is what's going on in academia that it must disavow its class position, like that it has to create these repeated focuses on um, uh, identity positions uh, rather than, um, you know, uh, engage in a, in a, in a transformative politics. Cause I don't see these um, insistences on staying in one's lane as in any way transformative at all. They are in fact, in a, in a way, pillars of the status quo, that those are rhetorical gestures, discursive gestures that only seek to affirm and underline the status quo. Yeah. Life. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I think even, I mean, look, I, I think there are also a couple of maybe more, you know, simple-minded, you know, criticisms that you can make of that posture. One of which is, is when, you know, cause if somebody was listening to you say that and they might say, well, hold on, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not defending the status quo. I, I want people to, to defer uh, to, uh, to, to the most oppressed people, uh, you know, people mm-hmm. who are, who are treated worse by the status quo. How could that be, be defending it? Uh, but of course, oftentimes in practice, uh, it's used uh, to uh, to defend, you know, the the horrible politics of establishment figures, you know, that that directly tax the status quo, uh, and and even when it is it's being used in the context of you know saying, oh, nobody who's not member of oppressed group X, you know, should should have uh, opinion on you know form of oppression X. Uh, which at best is a kind of weird unilateral disarmament because uh, the only people who, who would listen to that advice are people who are on your side and, and, and who acknowledge that that oppression is very bad, right? Like no, um, you know, uh, no man who's opposed to, uh, who's opposed to abortion will care, you know, that, that is, that is not in right. his lane. Right. You know, but, but, right. but men who are pro-choice, you know, might care. And so it's right. a, it's a weird, you know, can be this weird form of unilateral disarmament. But then the other thing is that has to do with what you were talking about with the, the oppression Olympics, that this, even if this was invented, um, you know, for the sake of, you know, a certain kind of, you know, I don't know, left liberal or radical liberal, you know, perspective, uh, it's super easy for anybody to pick up 
uh, these this this framework and use it for their own purposes. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, my like I I have I have seen, you know, feel like I'm just about to go into the rant from you know from uh, from Blade Runner. You know, you wouldn't have believed the things that I've seen. You know, but like uh, I, I I've seen. Uh, people who are like woke Zionists, you know, saying that uh, that uh, that they don't want, you know, they don't want Gentiles to, you know, go explain anti-Semitism to them. That if they say that this advocacy for the Palestinians is anti-Semitic, then you should just defer to Jewish people on that question. I've I've seen uh, the children of wealthy Venezuela, you know, emigres emigres saying, you know, oh, yeah. another white American leftist, you know, who, who who's going to tell me that I'm wrong about Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and if you you know if you see what's wrong with that, it's very hard. You know, I mean, I know there are ways that you can try to twist and contort and explain why those uses of it are not okay, uh, yeah. but uh, but your preferred uses of it are. Uh, but it, it it seems like a much more promising rhetorical posture to say, look, it might be true that on certain specific issues that uh you know that people gain some insight into them by having certain sorts of experiences right but um you know like it's it's a we're much better off just arguing for the positions that seem to be you know that seem to be correct and and not playing uh this game of extreme uh epistemic deference and it's also worth highlighting a, a point of connection between this and what we were talking about earlier that this 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 deference game only works and it, it only even makes sense on its own terms if it's combined with a pretty extreme form of essentialism yes. uh, because if not right like if you take seriously the idea that yeah there are more black people in the United States than, than there are people in Canada uh, and nobody would say Hey, we should just def- you know defer to the Canadian perspective. You know, we 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 should just think what the Canadians think, because they would immediately realize that the Canadians don't all think the same thing. Right, right. I mean, I can give you a great example. Uh, I'm actually going to be doing a little bit more work of on this uh, on my show um, in the coming months. Uh, but earlier this year, in my discipline, in my field in international relations, we had uh, a major controversy break that break out um, over. Uh, uh, what was alleged to be the hashtag deep fake methodology being used against uh, um, some theorists of security or security theorists, if you will, um, in Denmark. And these guys are very well-known scholars. I mean, I would have read their stuff when I was in grad, grad school, you know, like they're, they're, they, they would not in any way, shape or form really be people who embody my politics. They'd be fairly liberal mainstream guys, but I would never sort of say that they were um, uh, acting in bad faith or being essentially racist in any way, shape or form. Um, But uh, some work was published uh, this year, uh, which um, really did a hatchet job on these guys. And um, it um, was was basically kind of the the bottom line was, look, because they don't approach the question of security from a subaltern perspective, um, they uh, are not, uh, they're effectively being racist, um, you know, and, and it was, it was said in black and white in the, in in the piece. And, and the, there was some humming and hawing, like in the piece, they're like, well, we're not saying they're racist people, but their work is, you know, and, and because it has these blind spots, whatever, but at, at the, at the same 
time, you know, it, it, it struck me at the time that um, what was being assembled here um, on, was kind of in bad faith, you know, that, that, that these guys had never really set out to um, portray the world uh, perfectly. Uh, I think they would have been, and in their work, you know, they would acknowledge many, many blind spots. In good faith, their politics wasn't a post-colonial kind of operation, you know. So, um, it, you know, in, in a sense, like, you know, going after someone in this kind of, like, way where you kind of try to find the receipts in their work, but you're kind of having to reassemble them and your, your warrant for doing so in the way that you're choosing to do so is um, basically standpoint epistemology, right? But, you know, what it was, was two white women trying to represent these post-colonial subjects and the presumed subjectivity of these post-colonial subjects from this essentialized position. And then using that to, as a critique to, as the basis of a critique, um, of this white Anglo-European uh, uh, perspective on security. And it just struck me as being incredibly complicated once you actually started to pull back the lid on, 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 on how these two scholars were actually giving themselves permission to speak on behalf of this post-colonial subject. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. it, it was very strange. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm a... Uh... Uh, I'm an atheist, but if uh, if hell exists and I go there, I strongly suspect that it's going to be full of uh, white liberal academics accusing other white liberal academics uh, of of being implicitly racist. Uh, you know, in a cycle forever. Yeah. Um, so uh, so yeah, fair enough. Uh, people should should check out both the uh, the audio essay that that we're talking about, which was right after the election, and uh, the rest of what Nicholas says. Uh, he, uh, you know, his, his podcast, um, is, uh, is well worth listening to. Uh, I had, uh, I had not been, uh, I had not been listening to it. I, I, even though actually, by the way, I, I should say, uh, when we were talking before we started, we realized that Nicholas and I had actually met each other, um, right. a few years ago, uh, when I was a delegate, uh, for, uh, uh central New Jersey DSA at the uh, DSA convention, uh, in Chicago, and uh, and and Nicholas Nicholas was already there, but uh, he's 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 only been on my my radar as as far as media uh, relatively uh, relatively recently. But uh, but I heard uh, our our mutual friend Adam Proctor uh, did a a, a very in depth uh, two part uh, two part interview on, on Nicholas's podcast, fully automated. You know, which which was a really interesting listen, and, and I really wanted to. Uh, get Nicholas on to uh, chat with me a bit here. I hope for the first of many times. So uh, thank you again. Thank you so much, Ben. It was an honor. Thank you. Thank you. That was Nicholas Kiersey uh, from um, University of Texas, uh, Rio Grande Valley. Uh, and also the fully automated podcast. I am now joined, of course, by the great David Griscom, as always, for Outlaws and Revolutionaries. Howdy, Ben. <laughs> Howdy. So, uh, so today we're talking about Doug Sam. Yeah. Man, this one is uh, a really exciting one for me. Doug Sam is by far one of my favorite uh, artists. He really represents uh, so much that is so cool about Texas and you know Tejano music in particular. Um, just the way he was able to merge all these different styles. But 
I don't know, maybe to just go through it, uh, you know, from the beginning, he was one of those people who was just made for, <laughs> made for being, you know, was made to be, a, you know, an incredible musician. As a young kid, he was a really famous uh, steel guitar player. And in fact, he played steel guitar with Hank Williams Sr. Um, in what I believe was Hank Williams Sr.'s last uh, concert in Austin, Texas. Um, and Hank Williams, you know, sits him on his lap or something like that. So it's like, you know, you got to keep playing, son. You know, you're a real good, you're a real talent. And, you know, that just sort of set up Doug <laughs> um, for the rest of his life. But the thing with him that's really interesting is he was never able to settle on one kind of music or even one instrument. Uh, um, he was a sort of the steel guitar, but obviously also guitar, fiddle, mandolin, bass. He played the drums. Um, and he also played the Bajo Sexto, um, which is, you know, a really interesting big ass uh, guitar, essentially, that you play in uh, Tejano music. And that was the thing that was really cool about Doug is that he was a like he was an incredible like, country player, but he also loved, you know, he's from San Antonio. So he loved playing, you know, Tejano music and was very much influenced uh, by that as well. Also, we'll get to later, you know, formed an incredible super group called the Texas Tornadoes. Um, he was somebody, what I'm saying, uh, what I'm trying to get to is that he was somebody who living in San Antonio, growing up in San Antonio, was at the, the confluence of all of these different uh, cultures and also musical styles. And he, he loved to play and he was happy to play in any setting, you know, he'd be happy to play with hillbillies one day, go down to the, you know, all of the, you know, the great, uh, you know, black uh, blues clubs in San Antonio. And same thing, obviously, with Tejano music. He was just constantly moving around um, all those different circles. And he, again, he was really famous as a kid, uh, like even just in high school, um, you know, was a very famous local musician, which, you know, <laughs> that sets you up for an interesting life. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and... And yeah, in uh, you know, in the course, like this is a um, this is a career that you know that varies from uh, the uh, you know Texas Tornadoes, which we'll talk about in a minute, like all the mm -hmm. way to the uh, the uh, Sir Douglas Quintet. When yeah, 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 and the Sir so the, <laughs> the Sir Douglas Quintet is really interesting because uh, you know they're based out of San Antonio. But it was going on right when the, you know, the British invasion was happening in U.S. music. So they basically tried to, they, they had a similar sound. Um, not so much, actually. It's interesting. A lot of people think that they were just copying it. Um, but rather, a lot of people weren't familiar with the kind of, you know, German polka in influence, also, you know, uh, Tejano music influence um, that really just made it sound like it was something completely different. But people from their, you know, from that region, like, oh, no, this sounds like, you know, fairly typical. Obviously, it was, uh, you know, expanding on those styles. But anyways, they tried to market the band as like a British pop band. Uh, and that's why they went with the name Sir Douglas Quintet. <laughs> and a lot of people, when they were listening to those albums, thought that they were just another band coming in from Liverpool, um, except for the fact that, you know, Doug Salm obviously had a very noticeable Texas accent and like half of the band were, you know, Hispanic <laughs> Texans. So they would always, uh, you know, take when they would do promotional shots, they would always have um, they would do like side angle shots. So you couldn't really see anybody's face because they wanted to keep this, uh, you know, this myth that this is, you know, another English band uh, alive to sell records. But yeah, I mean, those, those, uh, those songs are really great. She's about a mover um, is one of his uh, really famous songs that comes from that period of time. And he was always, you know, he did a lot of solo albums um, while he was doing stuff with uh, Sir Douglas uh, Quintet. 
Um, but yeah, you know, so he was, he was, they were in Texas for a while and then they got busted for weed and like a whole lot of Texans, uh, in that period of time, they left and they went out to California, to San Francisco and were playing music there. And I think, um, you know, finding their way, but eventually, you know, Doug Somm comes back to, to Texas and doesn't really look back. Uh, he was, uh, you know, constantly traveling obviously for work, but he really made the decision to come back, uh, come back and let Texas be a big part of, of his life, you know, and, and finally people in Texas started to calm down a little bit because it was not a good place to be a little bit of a freak um, or a different kind of person in the sixties, you know, with long hair and smoking weed. So that's why there was such an exodus. But once he comes back, he comes back with a whole, you know, group of people, you know, something similar to like what happened to Willie Nelson, something similar, like what happened to Terry Allen, all these guys just had to come back eventually. Yeah. And, so, um, and, Okay, well, I don't, I don't want to get too far ahead in our story. So, uh, yeah. so where does it go from there? Oh, I mean, you know, so then, you know, he comes back. Uh, um, he, he ends up coming back and playing music, you know, really putting out some really great albums in the 70s, um, you know, really, you know, embracing the Texas culture, you know, cowboy hat. And one of the album covers he's holding, he's wearing a cowboy hat and holding Big Red, which is, a you know, a very famous soda there. Um, so anyways, he comes back into it. But later in, uh, you know, 1989, he forms this uh, Tex-Mex supergroup of the Texas Tornadoes with uh, Freddie Fender, Augie Myers, um, and Flacco Jimenez, um, who are just some incredible players. And it's one of my favorite uh, supergroups because it's just so... Uh, Texas in a lot of ways, like all of these different guys really playing music um, from their heart. But it's that really beautiful, like merging of, of cultures that I always thought was really, really fun and special in Doug Somm's music in particular. Yeah. So, so this is funny, you know, cause, because uh, <laughs> cause a lot of the, you know, the music that, that we talk about uh, you obviously, uh, you know, know much more about, you know, than I do. I mean, one of the, you know, when I, when I started the show, you know, one of the first things I said is I want to have, you know, Griscom on here to, uh, drink whiskey and talk about country music because that was a that's a extension of of uh, of what we you know what we mm-hmm. used to do in person you know and when, when I'd, I'd uh, you know be over at your apartment or whatever <laughs> yeah. and you'd, you'd put on some tunes and you know while we drank and you know talk about the music to me and I thought oh, this is fun I want to share this with people but this is um, you know but a lot of that both both then and on the show has been you introducing me to things but. Uh, but funnily enough, as we were talking about on, uh, on text the other day, uh, I actually did see the Texas Tornadoes in concert in uh, 19, <laughs> uh, 1996. I'm, I'm pretty old. so It's pretty uh, cool. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, they were, they were on tour. So I saw them in Michigan. And, uh, and the reason that I'm sure about that date, that it was you know, 1996, you know, when I was 16, uh, is that during the concert, they kept shouting out this movie Tin Cup, because apparently there's this one scene in that movie, you know, where they're they're in the soundtrack, you know. So I guess I, I in fact I still remember they, they were saying, you know, with you know, when the the scene where the armadillo crosses the road, you know, I guess that's that's where the music came out. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> and yeah, what brought you to that concert? Uh yeah, no, I mean it's 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 hard to say. I mean, like yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed it, but I mean, that, that definitely wasn't my idea. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I was thinking uh, when you told me that. But yeah, I mean, like they were they were really fun. Um, and, and actually, um, we'll come back to some of the songs in a second. But I also want to shout out 
Um, because, you know, Doug, Doug, unfortunately passed away. Uh, I, I must've been like eight years old. Uh, so I never really had a chance to see him play. And I, you know, I heard his name growing up in Austin, obviously, but, um, I really got reintroduced to his music, um, in, in a big way, like three years ago, I was hanging out in Austin, um, you know, over, over Christmas one year and I didn't really have anything to do. So I walked on down to the continental club and paid the cover charge. And I walk into this cover band, uh, this guy, BB Sing Sam, um, BB Sing Sam, sorry. And I've, I was definitely the youngest person in there by like 30 years, <laughs> but I have never seen like a more raucous crowd. People were losing their minds. And when they played, she's about a mover. For example, people were jumping up on this tiny little stage. Um, and I've never, I mean, it was a really incredible night. Some of the, you can actually find some of the videos from, um, um, from the, uh, from that, from that concert actually too on, on YouTube, which are really fun. But anyways, this is this cover band and this music just means so much to all these people. Um, and they're just such good jams. It's, he's the one that's going to be a little bit harder to talk about the music directly. Um, Cause it, it's, I don't get me wrong. There's great lyrics in his songs, but it's not really about, about that as much as it is about all this, this great sound and just like music that really makes you, you know, stand up and, you know, start tapping your feet. So that was, that was the kind of introduction I needed to understand, uh, you know, Psalms, uh, legacy, because, uh, you know, without that, without the, having that like energy in the crowd, um, you really don't understand how just important and, and interesting this music is for folks. But, um, I have to also, you know, shout out and, and remember, uh, you know, Charlie pride today. Um, and also, uh, you know, who just passed away. He's one of the greats of all time and we'll definitely do something on him soon. Um, but, one of, uh, you know, some of Doug Psalm's like most famous songs are Is Anybody Going to San Antonio, which was originally done by Charlie Pride. Um, so he always shouts him out or usually shouts him out when he does uh, live music. Some great, uh, some great uh, songs on his last album, uh, The Return of uh, Wayne Douglas. Um, oh, No, Not Another One, which is a song about mm -hmm. uh, watching modern day country music and being very disappointed. Uh, just turned, here are some lines from it. I just turned on my seat to see today. Man, my mind was blown away. There's a young dude walking across the stage like a gazelle. <laughs> Hell, I bet he'd never even heard of Lefty Frizzell. Um, you know, and that's a really fun song because he's seeing, you know, in what's going on even in the late 90s uh, in Nashville. And he's really trying to take that to task. Um, Texas Me is a really great song on that um, album as well. So I believe that came out actually in the 70s, which is just a song about feeling a little bit bad for being away from home uh, and feeling like you need to get back. And I definitely can, uh, you know, feel with that. Uh, and uh, yeah, you know, anyways, uh, that, that last album that he did, um, The Return of Wayne Douglas is a really beautiful album. It's a really Texas album. Uh, it's definitely going to be a Texas album if the first line in the album is Blue Bonnets. And the last line is adios. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, all right. Uh, really appreciate it as always, brother. This is always so much fun. Yeah, man. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. All right, that was David Griscom, uh, as always, with Outlaws and Revolutionaries. Before that, I was speaking to uh, Nicholas Kiersey uh, from the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and uh, the Fully Automated uh, podcast. Uh, before that, uh, I was um, 
having a discussion about libertarianism with uh, Jason Lee Bias. Uh, as far as what's coming up in the future, uh, there are some, um, so we're going to be taking uh, a little bit of a break between Christmas and New Year's. And uh, and when we come back in January, there are going to be some uh, some format changes, you know, going to retool some things, should be exciting, should be fun. But first, there's one last uh, 2020 episode of GTAA, and that is going to be this time next week. I am going to be speaking to Amber Frost and Slavoj Žižek. That should be really fun. I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, so uh, make sure to uh, to check that out. Um, and in that episode, I'll, I will go into detail about the uh, the format changes that are coming up, and and you know all the stuff that's planned for for 2021 for uh, the show for the channel. You know, should all be really good. Uh, if you if you like the work that we're doing here, if you want to support it, uh, please do consider becoming a patron. Uh, for five bucks a month, uh, you get early access to uh, to every single episode. Uh, you you get the uh, the Discord. You get regularly scheduled uh, Discord office hours, group chats, and there's more bonus stuff that's going to be introduced as part of all that that's going on in January. So please do consider doing that. Uh, and if, even, even if you can't swing that, please do rate and review wherever you get uh, podcasts. Uh, that really does help. And please like and subscribe on YouTube. Uh, as I'm saying this, uh, we are within like, I think, 100 people of 10,000 subscribers on YouTube. Uh, I would I'd really like it. It would mean a lot if we could uh, make it over uh, 10,000 by the end of the year. Uh, it's a, you know, it's an arbitrary benchmark, but, you know, one that would make me happy. Uh, but in any case, I am going to be back next week uh, with Zizek and Frost. Should be a fun discussion. I will see everybody then. Left is best. Mm-hmm.